Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Football Social Daily. European Championship Special. It's coming home. England took a massive step towards claiming a major competition for the first time since 1966 last night, beating Germany at Wembley to make it to the quarterfinals of Euro 2020. Raheem Sterling and Harry Kane were the heroes, scoring the goals that earned the Three Lions their first major victory over the Germans for the first time since Jeff Hurst hit a hat-trick at the same stadium 55 years earlier. There weren't any people on the pitch last night, but there were plenty in the stands, as 40,000 England fans spurred their team on, with their half of the draw now looking very favourable indeed. In the other game last night, that very few people from an England persuasion probably watched because they were down the boozers. Ukraine beat Sweden in extra time to set up a clash with England in Rome on Saturday night. We'll be having a look back at that game on today's Football Social Daily, which we might start calling It's Coming Home Daily, if England go much further. Towards the end of the podcast, we'll switch our attention back to the Premier League, as it looks like today could be the day two new Premier League clubs end their hunt for new managers, with Crystal Palace and Everton are both close to announcements, but poor old Spurs are still welcoming CVs down the job centre in the post. Joining me, Marley Anderson, to look through all that and get far too excited about England is two fellow England fans, Niall McCorn and Ian Brannan. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing very, very well, Marley. I feel very good. I've got a spring in my step this morning. It's been a while since I've smiled that much at a football match, celebrated that much for a football match. So yeah, I'm feeling good. I'm not quite as confident as you in saying it's coming home just yet because <laughs> I can visualise getting knocked out by Ukraine in the quarterfinals because that would just be typical England. Beat Germany convincingly, I thought, and then, and then lose to Ukraine. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely buzzing this morning. 
Yeah, I, well, I'm uh, in, in Newcastle this morning and um, I was here bright and early, half past five. There were still people out on the streets drinking, celebrating that victory. So it's been a long shift for them. I doubt they're going to be listening to this podcast until later on in the day. <laughs> if we're lucky, they might listen to it next week when uh, when everything's all said and done and England have <laughs> lost 2-1 to uh, Alexander Zinchenko goal for Ukraine or something like that. But my favourite thing about the, the, uh, the it's coming home thing when people say it is uh, the fact that everybody who's not of an England persuasion gets really, really, really triggered by it. And they're like, you're so arrogant. It's not coming home. It hasn't come home for 55 years. What you want about blah, blah, blah. And we're just like, yeah, but it's coming home. <laughs> and yeah. everyone's just yeah. like... I, I would think a lot of people that don't understand that it's coming home thing by now don't realise that it's absolutely tongue-in-cheek and it epitomises <laughs> English humour perfectly. No, of course they don't get it. Um, yeah, it might be a little bit of arrogance and, you know, like the, the images of um, the German pubs when Thomas Müller missed that one-on-one and the video that popped up on the big screen at Wembley of the little German girl crying in her dad's arms and people <laughs> laughing at her. That is British humour. That is English humour. And I tell you what, the Germans have watched us crying for a long, long time over the years. So just suck it up and enjoy it. So yeah, um, good scenes all around yesterday. Yeah, I was going to say, can I just say on that point, when you talk about arrogance and, and stuff like that, from the other pundits I've heard on on various other podcasts and and other radio programs and so on. The English are far from the most arrogant of this tournament. The most arrogant nations so far that I've experienced in terms of pundits. By a long way, we have one clear winner, and that is France. Some of the French pundits were so certain. They were they were going through the England uh, team on um, Five Live. I think it was last week. And one, this French pundit was going through the England team and he was really turning his nose up at how England were playing. And it's not really modern football. It's not modern football. It's not the way you win a tournament. It's like, ha, 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 See ya. You are damn right, Ian. You're never going to hear the end of it. Um, and very much, you're not going to hear the end of it on this podcast. So if England win, the podcast the next day is going to be dominated by England beating whoever they beat. Uh, but last night it was England 2, Germany 0. Um Let's let's begin at the start when when the team lineup was leaked uh, about six hours before the uh, the lineup, as it has been for every England game uh, this tournament, which is still a bit of a worry. Um, everybody seems to know it before, way before the game, which is bizarre. But the main talking point, Niall, was was the back three um, going to to match up Germany and cancel out their wing backs and all the rest of it, and you know negate their system almost. Um, did it work enough? Because it looked like in that first 10 minutes that it really wasn't going to work. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think that even Declan Rice after the game in his post-match interview said, or no, in fact, it was Harry Maguire who said that England felt a little bit nervous playing the back three for the first 10 minutes. And it's understandable. You're playing against Germany in a major tournament, knockout game, on home soil and all the rest of it that goes with it, you know, 55 years of hurt and all of that lot. And to be honest, I can see why people felt after 10 minutes, this isn't going to work. But after 15 and then 20, England started to settle down and they got into a bit of a rhythm. And I said this on Twitter, understandably, Harry Kane and Raheem Sterling will grab the headlines, particularly Sterling because he's been the star of the tournament for England. But I thought John Stones 
and Harry Maguire were absolutely immense at the back for England yesterday. Harry um, Maguire was just heading absolutely everything that came his way. He just looked on it. And considering he's been out for seven weeks with an ankle injury, which made him miss the end of the season for Manchester United, to come back and play two games, one against the Czech Republic, and then his second game being a you know, last 16 tie in the Euros against Germany for England. I just thought he was absolutely phenomenal. John Stones looked elegant and solid as ever. I thought the entire back line looked brilliant as well. Trippier and Walker, I think, look a little bit shaky. And I think that, you know, if you were talking about doing team ratings out of 10, I'd probably give those two the the lowest mark. But Shaw looked very accomplished as well in that left wing back role. And I think it's fair to say that because England won the game 2-0, they ended up you know, justifying the the back three choice from Gareth Southgate. And I think Southgate said after the game as well, he said, you know, people always look at my team selections and they'll always look at personnel and systems. And if you get it wrong, you're dead. And he's right. And he doesn't just mean he's dead in terms of the media and the fans gunning for him. England would have been dead in the tournament if it had backfired. You only get one chance. And he played it absolutely perfectly. And for all the stick that Gareth Southgate has got, you have to hold your hands up and give him credit because... He got it right. He got it absolutely bang on. And apart from the first 10 minutes, which were a little bit shaky, I mean, there were some absolutely massive performances. The back three didn't look alien to England. They certainly settled into it and played well um, throughout the rest of the course of the game after that opening exchange. So definitely some some huge performers at the back. I mean, Maguire in his interview again picked out Pickford, who made some huge saves. So um, yeah, brilliant performance from England. And I think definitely the back three did work in the end and the result shows that. Ian, we mentioned the, the back three working um, and the system working. However, the game was... Fairly, fairly England, quite dull and lethargic towards the probably the first hour, um, and then everyone was crying out for changes. You know, there's a couple of chances in the first half. You can talk about Werner for for Germany and Sterling's shot, for example, and and Kane's effort for England in the just before half time. But it was it really took a change when when the changes were made, well, didn't it? Because Grealish came on with 25 minutes ish to go and and as soon as he got involved in the game he changed everything for England didn't he yeah but I kind of think this was the the plan all along because um England uh I think England fans want to see England playing what you know Jurgen Klopp would call rock and roll football you know throwing the kitchen sink at it shot after shot and all that kind of stuff but that obviously leaves you more open at the back open to making mistakes and and against a team like Germany I mean we made the one mistake and, and got out of jail with with Muller's shot but I think you're going to make more of those mistakes because that came from England in that part of the match where they were pressing for for that extra goal and and you see what happens. England and I was hearing from some other um, football person who who knows a bit more about the, the 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 stats in terms of how England play in their style and how they're varying things throughout the course of the match and they are having windows of attack effectively you know they're keeping everything nice and tight and quiet and then going for it in periods of the game rather than constantly going for it which is where perhaps we might have come unstuck in in the past or indeed indeed in this tournament so it's a managed game you know they're keeping a a lid on things a sensible game doing uh doing what we can taking the opportunities as they come along but not going daft over it but bringing somebody like Grealish on who is a, a creative player anyway is a handful he's a player that 
the opposition teams have, have openly said is one of the players that they fear the most with England and bringing him on with fresh legs with, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour to go. It clearly it's, it's um, having results because he was the, he was the difference and really changed things up a notch and, and really caught Germany at a point where probably they were feeling it a little bit on the pitch, you know, running around for an hour or so. And then somebody like that comes on and just that extra yard or two of pace made the difference, gets the crosses in and then you get the goals and, it was certainly um, a, a way of managing the game that that worked and is working for England. And yeah, you know, uh, we've we've learned over the last couple of weeks that we don't know better than Gareth Southgate. <laughs> so I'll leave him to it. <laughs> well, you mentioned the goals there. Um, it was Raheem Sterling that scored the first goal, the all important sort of icebreaker almost. Um, Niall, how fitting is it that it was him that scored? He's been given. Quite a lot of stick. He's not coming off the best uh, season he's mm. ever had for, for Manchester City. He was born, what, 500 metres or something from uh, from the Wembley Arch. Uh, he's got the tattoo on his arm. It, it had to be him, didn't it? Yeah, it's been his tournament. And interestingly enough, I've seen a few pundits and a few news articles suggesting, even before the tournament, that the mindset of Raheem Sterling going into this Euros was, it's my time. This is my time. The time is now for me, a home tournament. Pretty much all of the games at Wembley, obviously the quarterfinal against Ukraine will be in Rome. But if England can get through that, the semi-final and maybe the final um, will be at Wembley. So absolutely brilliant for him in the shadow of where he grew up, um, or he grew up in the shadow of Wembley, as you say, to then score in pretty much what is his manner, his own backyard. Um, absolutely brilliant to see. The thing is with Raheem Sterling, you're right, he's had a, a disappointing season on a personal level for Manchester City. Let's not forget that City still won the Carabao Cup and the Premier League. Um, But as for Raheem Sterling, I don't know whether it's because I don't watch Manchester City as regularly as obviously the City fans do because they watch every game. I find Raheem Sterling exceptionally frustrating because he is a very, very good player. He's a top player. And when he's on form, he can be world-class. But it's the decision-making I find with Raheem Sterling that really makes me tear my hair out. There's times where he collects the ball and he should pass and he doesn't. He decides to go direct. There are other times where you know, he, he sometimes decides to shoot instead of passing. And, and just the decision-making is frustrating for Raheem Sterling, in my opinion. But... What you cannot deny is that he influences games and he impacts games. And maybe that is why the Manchester City fans on Twitter were all just saying, keep the faith with Raheem. Something will happen. Something will happen. And it did. He was there to tap home. Um, You know, a great ball across from Luke Shaw, teasing ball around the front of the defender. And uh, Sterling was there onside to to bury the finish. So absolutely brilliant for him to see, uh, for him to score that goal. And certainly the criticisms that he's had, not just on the field, but off the field as well. There was a bit of a, I don't want to say a witch hunt, but there was certainly a tendency for some of the tabloid press in this country, some of the red tops particularly, to make an example of Raheem Sterling or make him a target in the press. I remember after England got knocked out by Iceland in the Euros, all of the headlines on the papers um, in 2016 were Raheem Sterling returns home after England, embarrassed by Iceland and buys his mum a new house or something along those lines. And it's just like, well, what's that got to do with anything? And, you know, actually our own Adam Keyworth, who features a lot on our Premier League sort of preview and review shows, did an excellent thread on his Twitter feed about all of the times that the tabloids have gone after Raheem Sterling unnecessarily. And it was almost the two fingers from Raheem 
to say, this is what I can do. This is what I'm capable of. I've had enough of your stick and I'm going to show you exactly what I'm all about. And he's done it not just once, not just twice, but three times this tournament. And that could be the biggest goal of his career. Um, Gareth Southgate said before the game that, you know, this is a chance for England players to make heroes of themselves and write their own history and score a goal that will be replayed forever and ever and ever. And Raheem Sterling might well have done that. And uh, he's written his name into England folklore, even if he doesn't do anything again for the rest of the tournament, even if he doesn't do anything again in a three-line shirt for the rest of his career. He's got that moment to savour in his backyard. Um, brilliant stuff. Um, it was great to see him score. That said, on the newspaper front um, this morning, interestingly, um, the Sun, of course, are the ones who have gone in on Raheem Sterling, as you mentioned numerous times over the course. Of any anything, he's on the front pages. Now they've stuck him on the on the front page this morning as as a hero, and every other newspaper has used a photo of Harry Kane um, on their front cover. Um, all the, yeah. the, all the papers except the Sun. You know, it, I was just going to mention why, that. Yeah. It, it's bizarre, isn't it? Why are we focusing he on Harry Kane? The, he, he, yeah, he didn't score the the important goal, did he? No. Why are we focusing on Harry Kane? And and you know, there is an obvious element in the room. Uh, that's you know that that just shows you the we go on about why are players kneeling down for for Black Lives Matter and 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 all this kind of stuff and people saying we don't need it anymore. We absolutely need it because every single newspaper in this country has featured a white player on the front cover and on their back pages and not Raheem Sterling. And that is why this uh, gesture continues. Yeah, it's absolutely bizarre. When I've I seen the, um, some of the back pages late last night, you know, when they get leaked, uh, well, not leaked, that sort of released when they go go to print. And I was thinking, why are we, why, why are we looking at Kane? The, there was absolute scenes when Sterling scored that goal. There were some fantastic images of him wheeling away towards the corner, Foden chasing him with his subs um, kit on. Uh, fans falling over the stands uh, in that weird sort of that weird like mesh thing they've got over the seats to stop fans on it they're all bouncing up and down like like it's a bouncy castle it looked amazing and I'm thinking and then there was that iconic image as well that will probably be Sterling's um, phone background for the rest of his life of him uh, holding up his 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 little son uh, when he went to the um, when he went to the crowd and he found his, it must have been one of his friends or his uncle or something, or, um, and he got his son and he put him on his shoulders and his his kid was wearing a Sterling number 10 shirt and he's obviously wearing the same. And I just thought that was brilliant. I thought, there's the, there's the back pages. And then you wake up this morning or late last night and you're going, oh, why why is Harry Kane on it? That's, that's it's bizarre, but that's it doesn't really surprise us. That's a sad thing, isn't it? No, if Harry Kane had scored a hat trick or whatever, then you could say, well, fair enough. But he didn't. He he got he got a, a a ball that happened to land on his head, and he put it in the net, which frankly he should have been doing more of in the tournament. He, he's he's taken until now to do that. Yet um, Raheem Sterling, somebody who's taken so much flack for things off the field that are absolutely nothing to do with anybody, let alone football. Um, he's he was even getting abuse for even being in part of the the England squad. Why are we taking him uh, just a few weeks ago? Now he's the only person, apart from Harry Kane, who scored any goals, and then yeah, just erased from history for some somehow. But luckily, we've got other means that we can we can see these pictures and and see what's going on. But if we if if your entire knowledge of the world was left to the front pages of our newspapers, then um, then you wouldn't even know who was playing. Yeah. Hundred percent. Very, very strange uh, set of occurrences. But we'll we'll move on to to our, our next topic. Was talking about Harry Kane's performance actually, because 
he was frustrating, wasn't he, Niall? He, he, for the whole game, he, he couldn't really get into it. When he did, he 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 struggled to to look like the Harry Kane that we all know, and you know the one that won the Golden Boot and the the uh, the top assists award in the Premier League this season, especially with the the chance he wasted towards uh, just before half time there. But there was no Dominic Calvert Lewin on the bench last night. Um, he wasn't injured. He was just left out of the squad. And it's one of those apparently it's one of those bizarre UEFA rules where you have to have two goalkeepers on the bench. So it's not like you could just have Ramsdale or Johnston. And Calvert Lewin was was left uh, back at the hotel or wherever he was. So there wasn't even the means to change it in terms of taking Kane off. So it was almost like you always knew he was going to play the whole game and try and play his way through this sort of poor performance. But in the end, he got the goal um, and he improved massively when Grealish came on and and got a bit closer to him. But how would you sort of sum up his performance? Do you know what? Watching Harry Kane last night reminded me of watching Brett Pittman when he played for Portsmouth. (laughs) How have you managed to get Brett Pittman into this podcast? I'll I'll tell you why, because Brett Pittman, for us, he would spend 80 minutes sort of trotting around the pitch, looking very cumbersome, very slow, very leggy, almost like he didn't want to challenge for any ball. But when the ball went into the box, you just knew he was going to be there. And that's why you wanted him on the pitch for 90 minutes, because you just knew he had an eye for goal. And some players have got that. They've just got that telepathy of knowing where the ball's going to be at any given time. And Harry Kane, I thought, was awful yesterday. Um, I'm looking at my WhatsApp group now with a few mates. I sent a message at 18 minutes past five, so 18 minutes into the game. Harry Kane hasn't touched the ball yet. And in the first half of that game against Germany, he touched the ball nine times. The fewest of any England player on the pitch. I think in total, he probably must have only touched the ball about 20, 25 times. One of them was a goal. Another one of them was a, was a good chance. So the thing is with Harry Kane is for me, he just, something's not right there. He doesn't look like the Kane we saw scoring goals and creating assists at Spurs like you touched upon there, Marley. I don't know whether he's not fit. I don't know whether there's something else going on. He just doesn't look quite right. But I don't think that's necessarily a negative thing. Everyone was expecting Kane to kind of be the one who scores five, six goals this tournament and fires England to glory. But I think England are quite happy if it's Raheem Sterling because if it isn't Sterling, it's going to be one of the other talented forward players. Let's not forget Jadon Sancho can't even get a game. Jadon Sancho cannot even get a game for England at the moment. Mason Mount wasn't included because he'd just come back from isolation. Phil Foden didn't get on the pitch. Grealish obviously came on and got another assist and played a part in the first goal as well. So if you're talking about players to keep an eye on, there's so many in the England ranks. I don't think Gareth Southgate would be too bothered that everyone's focusing on Harry Kane. I think I think he'd actually be quite happy with that because if it means that teams take their eye off some of the other players then um, that can probably stand England in good stead. I certainly think there's something not right with Kane. Not sure what it is, not sure whether it's fitness, fatigue, or something else going on, but he certainly looked, as I say, very slow, very, I don't want to say heavy, but cumbersome, the way he was carrying himself. He looked like he had absolutely no pace. The fact of the matter is, he is just a goal machine. And even though I think he's had a poor tournament so far, I don't think he's impacted or influenced games at all, Harry Kane. And whether that's to do with the lack of service or anything like that, I'm not so sure. Everyone knows who listens to the podcast how big of a fan I am of Kane. But he's certainly not been the influencing character that I was hoping he would be throughout this Euros. 
but still, he, he knows where to be at the key times. And he scored the killer goal, which ended up killing Germany off and securing England passage to the quarterfinals. Bit weird that there was no Dominic Calvert-Lewin, but, you know, the tournament is still got another three games to go if England are going to go all the way. And I'm sure Dominic Calvert-Lewin will play his part. I'm sure there'll be a, a moment in which he'll be required and he'll be called upon, much like Jaden Sancho. I mean, it's a pretty good place to be in that we're now four games into the tournament from an England perspective and we haven't really seen much of Sancho and Foden's been given a rest for a couple of games as well. I mean, that's a frightening thought. Those two possibly coming into a side fresh. I mean, Ukraine must be worried about England. There's no doubt about that. So, yeah, I thought Kane, you know, he waited patiently and got his goal, even though he looked like he was never going to score in a month of Sundays during the game. But um, that's just a sign of a top quality player. I do think there's a problem there somewhere. I'm not sure what it is. Don't want to speculate. But certainly Kane, fair play to him for for sticking in and, uh, and getting his goal by the end of it. Yeah, well, he did get the goal towards the end. Um, one thing I would say about Kane's performance is I was looking at the, the service he was getting throughout the game and I didn't think the system suited Kane at all. I thought with the, with the flat midfield, you know, the two holding sort of style midfielders, Phillips and Rice, there was no one getting close to him from a central position. Um, and I thought Sterling playing on the left and Saka on the right means there are no crosses going to come into the box because the, both them players have to come inside and try and affect the game there. So I think when, when we we brought Grealish on and he's got two feet and he can play both both ways, you know, the first time he got the ball, he put the cross in. Um, he put a cross in for, for Kane's... Uh, for Kane's goal, um, and in the build-up to the first goal as well, Kane was involved because Sterling actually got close to him for once. They forced the overlap with Shaw, and it went into Sterling put the ball in the back of the net. So, I think one of the keys to to Harry Kane is is unlocking his abilities by by getting him into the game a little bit more. I don't think England have done that yet in the in the tournament, but if they can uh, do that, then I think there's there's a massive chance that England could go very very far. But That'll wrap us up for England-Germany. We'll we'll discuss more uh, with England on Friday's podcast before Saturday's game against Ukraine. But it, it is the Eastern Europeans that we're going to concentrate on next because after the break we'll be discussing Ukraine's extra-time victory over Sweden at Hampden Park. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. We've just been finishing off talking about England versus Germany. Of course, England getting to the quarterfinals means there is one more game at least uh, in this European Championships for England, which means that you can continue to take advantage of the Boyle Sports England offer that they've got going on throughout the Euros. Every time you put £10 on an England game on any market, if it loses, you will get a free bet back to the value of that £10. So it's a, basically, it's a no-lose bet. So even if you bet on England to lose and they win, you can still get that £10 back in free bets Uh Check that out on Boyle Sports app on the website and remember to be gambleaware and visit begambleaware.org for all the terms and conditions. But let's move on to some of the football that we've seen last night. I don't know if anyone watched this uh, or whether everyone was just absolutely hammered on the the beers, Um, but Ukraine actually came through an absolute, well, it was a a slobber knocker. To use an old uh, wrestling term, which I've not—I don't know why Slobberknocker came into my head. I was thinking I thought that was a Ukrainian substitute for a minute. There. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it could have been because they needed plenty because everyone was dropping like flies towards the end of the game. Um, 
it went into extra time, 1-1 after normal time. Zinchenko scored for Ukraine early on with a fantastic uh, finish from across from Yarmolenko. And it was cancelled out by Emil Forsberg's fourth goal in four games. Um, guys, what, what did you think of of Ukraine? Ian, was, would, did they do anything where you think, oh God, we've got to be scared of them because they've got this player or that player? Because it was a fairly... They almost cancelled each other out, didn't they, last night, the two teams? Yeah, look, there, there are no teams left in, in our side of the competition that England should be fearful of. We're, we're better than all of those nations on our day. Clearly, uh, we know that England can fall to, to a defeat uh, at any point and uh, you can't necessarily um, <laughs> predict what's going to happen in the future. But I think Germany were certainly the, the strongest opposition that we could have faced uh, left in the, the tournament and we've, we've dealt with them finally. I mean, you look at the... Ukrainian lineup and Yarmolenko's the probably well, he's their captain, but I think you'd say he's their best player. Of course, Zinchenko we know about as well, but um, no, I, I don't think that they should cause us any problems in the next round. And to watch the match last night, it was a yeah, it was a bit of a slog fest. Two teams, as you say, cancelling each other out. Two fairly big teams in terms of the, the, the stature of the of the players. They're quite big guys. I imagine it's going to be like playing against Burnley or something like that, you know, where you never know how it's going to go. But they're, they're quite a robust outfit. Um, just looking at the, the formation they played, they, they went with a, a 4-3-3 last night. And I know that we, we touched on um, what England might do in the next round, but whether that's something to consider in, in terms of how our formation might stack up against um, what, what the Ukrainians are used to playing. But yeah, I, it wasn't one of the um, matches of the tournament that you would be asking for the DVD of afterwards, for sure. And uh, yeah, we, we got through it and got a result in the end. And, of course, they've had to play the extra half hour as well, which uh, clearly would be a welcome news for, for England, as you say, dropping like flies uh, by the end of the match. And uh, that Hampton pitch certainly um, sapped the muscles. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, It was definitely... It was one of them, I think. So extra time last lasted half an hour. I think extra time lasted over 40 minutes, I think, because, I mean, at one point there was there was about five guys down. There was... Yarmolenko went down. Uh, Zinchenko, I think, knocked out Emil Kraft with a cross by hitting him straight in the temple and knocking him pretty much clean out at one point. Um, there was players just dropping left, right and centre and you just thought this one needs to go to penalties quickly because no one's going to make it this far. Um, but there was a late winner, <laughs> Artem Dovbik, who I'm sure we've all heard of and had posters on our walls for uh, for, oh, yeah. for years. Um, he came on uh, late in the day and scored a fantastic header, to be fair. Lindelof made the mistake, I think, letting him run off him. But Dovbik scored. Um, Ukraine are through. They saved themselves penalties. But the the key point of the game, Niall, was was when um, Danielson, the centre-back, was was sent off for one of them, one of the modern decisions now where you it doesn't really matter if you win the ball because the follow-through caught him. And, uh, and it did... It did smash the the Ukraine player. I think it was um, like a one of them sort of bent bent leg situations. The still images of of the challenge do not do Danielson any favors. But it's split opinion this because he won the ball fair fair and square almost. But it was the follow through that did the damage. So, from your opinion, did you think it was uh, a deserved red card? This is a tough one. It really is because we saw something similar in the Premier League earlier this season, didn't we? With it. 
was it West Ham who had a man sent off for something similar where a ball was cleared and then um, the follow through ended up catching the player and yeah like you say slow motion never does these sorts of tackles any favours and you know you look at the Swedish players he was walking off the pitch Danielson and he looked he looked pretty annoyed about it Um, it's fair to say he couldn't really believe it but wasn't it a decision that was overturned by VAR or the referee looking at the monitor Um, yeah he went to look at the monitor and you you know as soon as the ref looks at monitor that he's gonna give the the red card. So it's, yeah. it was another one of them. What I will say is that it's unlucky. I think it's unlucky. It doesn't mean it's not a red card, but I definitely think it's unlucky because he makes contact with the ball, doesn't he? He's stretching to try and make contact with the ball, so it's kind of dropping out of the sky, and he gets his foot to it, and all he's thinking about the Swedish player Danielson is kicking that ball. He's not thinking about the Ukraine player coming in. He's not thinking about leaving a bit on him because in the time it takes for him to kick the ball before he makes contact with the Ukrainian player, no one can think that quickly to be sinister about it and go, I'm going to put a bit on him here. Um, I, I just think it's one of those where it does look absolutely dreadful in slow motion. You're right. And the Ukrainian player ended up, I think, coming off because of it. And there was footage of him sort of with ice on the side of his knee um, and his knee did hyperextend. And it, it's not nice to view. Um, it really he only isn't. lasted uh, 11 minutes. Wow. It was. He came on and came on in the 90th minute just at full time. Uh, and he went off on 101 minutes. Artem Bezidin, who was uh, smashed by by that tackle. Yeah, I mean that that's not nice. And hopefully he recovers quickly, but not quickly enough for the England game. But there we go. Um, yeah, not, I mean hopefully he's all right. I mean I, it's one of those where you, it is so 50-50, and that is what VAR is interesting uh, for because we've spoken about this before in terms of you know, the referee's decision is almost always subjective and always was before technology came in. What might be a foul to Mike Dean in the Premier League might not be a foul to Kevin Friend. And they're both Premier League referees trying to do the same job. What I think is a foul, Marley and Ian, you might not think is a foul. So refereeing can be quite subjective. And I think this is one of those circumstances where certainly if it wasn't given as a red card, you can understand it. But I can also see why completely the decision was changed into a red. I don't think it's deliberate. That doesn't mean it's not a red card. He does make contact with him high. But then again, there'll be people that say, well, where else has his leg got to go? You know, like I say, it's in such a split second that 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 moment takes place. It's almost impossible to withdraw your foot or try and avoid the contact. Um, I think it was an honest tackle. Doesn't mean it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't even a tackle, was it? I mean, that's the wrong word to use. I mean, it's, it's just a clear. Yeah, it's yeah. so difficult. It's so difficult, and I think the Swedish can feel hard done by, and the Ukrainians will probably be thinking that was the right decision. It's one of those. Um, it will divide people. Whether it costs Sweden the game in the end, who knows? I think that was the thoughts of uh, Freddie Ljungberg, the former Arsenal midfielder, who was in the TV studio um, discussing the game afterwards, and that. Sweden lost the game because they were down to 10 men for 20 minutes of extra time. I don't think that holds any water for me because it was a good ball into the box from Zinchenko and the defenders just looked a bit jaded, a bit tired and sort of fell asleep. I mean, they managed to keep Ukraine at bay for the last however long it was with 10 men on the pitch. So I don't see how them scoring in the 90 or the 121st minute or 122nd minute or whatever it was of extra time... I don't see that being a reason why Ukraine beat them. 
I think that it was just a good ball in and it was a good goal. And it's sometimes you just have to hold your hands up and say they were they were kind of waiting on penalties the Swedes and they they took their eye off the ball at the last minute. Tough one to call. I'm not sure. I think I mean you could you could ask a hundred people um, whether they thought it was a red or not, and I think you'd get a pretty even split. Might see a, a Brexit situation. <laughs> I'm just looking at the uh, the rules of the game according to the FA. And firstly, they're about 3,000 words long just for uh, what you would give a card for. There's there's so much to go through. But for a sending off, I think really the bottom line is that it has to be deliberate, um, has to have uh, an element of violence towards it, uh, that, that, that you know, there was intent to harm a player. It doesn't mention anything about accidentally catching someone. It doesn't make any any mention about that for a sending off. Yes, for a booking. If there's contact uh, and, and so on, then for a booking. And if he was on a yellow already, you could say second yellow means a red. All right, we probably won't be arguing about it or even talking about it. It would be one of them things. But it does seem to be a bit of a grey area. And the, the, the things that you can be sent off for are, uh, are in brackets, but not limited to. So it seems that, you know, a red card can be dispatched for a... For anything. In fact, you can get sent off for using your phone on the pitch. So uh, watch out for that, players. I mean, I did a refereeing course when I was much, much younger. And some of the things you could get booked for, remarkable. If your shin pads are showing and not covered by your socks and the referee asks Mm. you to pull them up and you don't, that's a booking. Um, I know a referee who was of religious persuasion and gave a decision. And one of the players went, oh, my God, ref. And uh, he sent him off. So it's very, yeah. very peculiar. Um, that's obviously an extreme example, but it is. Yeah, but it, it shows it's down to interpretation, doesn't it? That's 100%. the that's the the thing. You know, yeah. it's it's that individual, as you were saying, that individual's um, personal take on 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 what he sees is a send off a send offable offence. Mm. Um, I tell you what, yeah. we talk about the um, the red card, you know, possibly costing Sweden. I think actually it could have had a, a large part to play in Ukraine winning the game because. If you look at the at what happened, um, Bezidin is a striker. He got injured. He got took off after 101 minutes, um, and a winger came on, not a striker, which left Andriy Shevchenko needing another striker on the pitch for the last five ten minutes. So he chucked on Artem Dovbik, who was largely in the squad to make up the numbers after uh, Junior Marais, that classic Ukrainian name. Um, got injured um, and wasn't in the squad. So Dovbik got put on on 105 minutes, scored in 121, game over, they win the game. And it's it's just weird how things work out in, in football sometimes because if Bezidin didn't get caught by that, um, by that stray boot or whatever you want to call it, that lunge by Danielson, he's probably not going to be on the pitch, Dovbik, when he scores that goal. And does Bezidin score that if he, if he tries to run that injury off? Um, and it's not as bad. Does he? Does he get into that position? You never know, and we'll we'll never know. But what we do know is that Ukraine will play England on Saturday night in Rome. And speaking of of Ukraine, Niall, what what do we as England fans? What do we worry about um, with with uh, Ukraine? What are they doing that that you think you know we've got to be mindful of that? Is it is it Yarmolenko's form? Because Yarmolenko for me seems like. Pogba for, for Ukraine, he, he seems to play better for Ukraine, West Ham fans are probably tuning into the Euros going who the hell's this um, Andrew Yarmolenko because he's not played like this for us for years um, and Zinchenko as well in midfield, is, is his midfield role is way different to what we used to seeing him play for Man City uh, at left back week in week out so who should we be uh, a bit worried about? 
Yeah, I don't know if the Yarmolenko's going to play. Did he not look like he had a bit of a knock at one point during the game? At least I think that's what I heard well, during the everyone commentary. Did. Everyone did, though, didn't they? Yeah, to be fair, that's for a very good point. I think the key against Ukraine is, is left foot because Zinchenko's left-footed and that delivery into the box was wicked. Um, and we know that he's got a, a decent delivery and the ability to find the target. Um, and Yarmolenko as well. He loves cutting in from the right on his left foot. And it's almost like you know exactly what's going to happen. Much like um, when Coutinho used to play for Liverpool, you just knew when he was cutting in on his right um, where the ball was going. And I think Yarmolenko has a little bit of that about him. He, he loves to cut in on that left foot and fire shots away. Um, I don't think England should be fearful of the Ukraine, but I also don't think that England should take them lightly. Um, Gavin Hamilton's Euros road trip, which you can find on the Sports Social Podcast Network, gives some brilliant insight into all of the teams uh, during the Euros this tournament. And um, I listened to the Ukraine one actually a few weeks ago um, because there was a lot of people talking about the Ukraine and how you know they've had a tough time of it over the last sort of 12 to 18 months in terms of the players they've had. I mean, they had a remarkable moment, I think, in one of the last international breaks where I think 20 or 25 of their players were struck down with COVID and basically... They had to play the youngsters, and I mean the under-21s, uh, in a game against France, I think it was. And they actually acquitted themselves really, really well. So Andrei Shevchenko is loved in the Ukraine, and he's a legendary um, football player and uh, sort of a legendary icon in that country. And I think now that they've gone as far as they've ever gone in the tournament, I think they'll have as much momentum as England have. You know, they might not have done it in the same fashion. Ukraine against Sweden isn't exactly the same sort of rivalry as England against Germany is. But I think England need to be careful that, you know, their crowning glory, their crowning moment wasn't the Germany game because Ukraine will be feeling similarly to how England are feeling, but for different reasons. England have almost got the monkey off their back of finally beating Germany in a major tournament for the first time since 1966, whereas Ukraine have never got this far ever. So they'll feel like they're skipping on air and they'll feel like that they can go uh, as far as uh, as they want because, you know, they've got that enjoyment and almost that freedom to go, well, we got no fear. If we, got ne- if we get knocked out to England, there's no shame in that. And so I think that this could be a really interesting game. England don't tend to beat teams by a plethora of goals as we've seen during the tournament. I mean, beating, beating Germany 2-0 was the highest scoreline England have had uh, in a while. They've won most of their games 1-0, haven't they? Both in the pre-tournament friendlies and in the group stages of this Euros. So, yeah, I mean, Ukraine, they have a, an, eth- an ethos, a team spirit, a work ethic, a unity, something that most international teams have um but they've, they've got something a little bit different. Um, I'd encourage everyone who wants to know a little bit more about Ukraine to listen to that podcast, uh, Gavin Hamilton's Euros Road Trip on Ukraine, because it will give you a bit of an insight into the way uh, that they like to play. They've got some promising young defenders coming through, particularly. Um, you mentioned Junior Marais as well. Um, obviously, he's uh, Brazilian-born, but he's been sort of national, not what's the word, re nationalized acclimatized yeah yeah he's yeah he's become sort of a a ukrainian citizen because he's one of many brazilians who sort of come over from south america to start the european football journey in the ukrainian league similar to fernandinho and and players like that much much yeah absolutely fred as well another one who played for shakhtar donetsk as well before signing for manchester united so they do have a sort of a a good core of brazilians over there in the ukraine and they're kind of tapping into that so um so yeah i think that they they kind of have eyes on the future and i don't think this is the last we'll see from this ukraine group they've got a good blend of experience 
and youth. I mean, I think Zinchenko, what's he only 24, 25? So he's kind of going to be their, their flag bearer for the next 10 years, you'd think. So um, even though this is the furthest they've ever got, I wouldn't rule them out possibly qualifying for the next World Cup or the next Euros because they look like they could well um, sort of develop into a, a team who do soar up the rankings. So yeah, it won't be easy for England, but I think the left-footedness of Zinchenko and the left-footedness of Yarmolenko, um, I just think to be aware of that. And, you know, Zinchenko down the left, worrying about those deliveries into the box. If you can cut that off at source, um, then that's always going to be a benefit. And as for Yarmolenko, if you can keep him on the outside instead of cutting in onto his left, I think that will also help England out if he plays. I think the thing with uh, Ukraine and, and what goes uh, very much in England's favour is that they've conceded at least one goal in every game so far in this tournament. And even beyond that, um, they, they very rarely keep a clean sheet to Ukraine. If you look back even over the last two or three years, they usually let at least one in. And I think they've got... They've only got one competitive clean sheet since um, 2019, and that was against Spain in the Nations League um, last year. But um, apart from that, they've they've conceded in every competitive game, and certainly in this tournament, they've been conceding as well. So um, for England, of course, haven't conceded any. In contrast, um, keep that going, and and um, you know, I think all, all everything is positive. I think for England, and they, they do have their frailties. Ukraine, they're, they're not a team that we should be fearing really. On paper, at least. Huh. <laughs> Famous last words. Well, we'll find out who uh, who prevails between England and Ukraine. Uh, that's on Saturday night in Rome, eight pm. That isn't that is a plum tie, isn't it? Saturday night, eight pm. The boozers will be busy all weekend. The big screens will be out. The beer will be flowing. <laughs> Great news. I'll be out of isolation at that point. My isolation finishes on Fridays. My my fiance's got COVID until Friday, so oh, she's man. allowed out on Friday. <laughs> she's at Hendu on Friday. I'm in the pub all day Saturday. Let's <laughs> let's uh, let's have it. The bad um, news, Marley, though, is I've just seen the M62 was shut for 14 hours yesterday after a lorry load of carling caught fire and melted the tarmac. So um, yeah, that's the best thing to happen to carling <laughs> in years. <laughs> if you're looking for a pint of carling on Saturday night, you might struggle to get one. That is yeah. the only place for Carlin to tipped over the M62 where no one can drink it. <laughs> I know somebody that was stuck in that traffic jam and they ended up watching the match uh, in in the back of a van with some fellow uh, some fellow people who were also stuck and they got it on a laptop. So there was a watch party in the traffic jam. Love it. That's brilliant. <laughs> I love that there's Wi-Fi in the M62 and that everyone's just like, yep, come on, come to my van. Come Could into my van and watch this well. match. <laughs> <laughs> if it should, should point out, if anybody invites you into the back of a van to watch a football match, um, chances are they might be dodgy, so uh, leave, them, <laughs> leave them to it. Um, but again, every time I host this this podcast, it goes absolutely nuts at some point. It's always down to you, Ian. Um, so we're going to leave it there for part two. We'll be back and we'll be focusing on the Premier League after this uh, short break. Join us then. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. We've talked about Carlin spilling um, and all sorts of random stuff so far on the podcast. Covered England, covered Ukraine, but now it's time to cover the Premier League once again because there are set to be two new managers announced probably today, maybe certainly before uh, Friday, you would think, with the Euros kicking back off again. I think a lot of teams want to take advantage of this sort of dead space in the uh, the football calendar. And the two that we're, we're most interested in is the two that are have been looking for managers for a while now. Crystal Palace, who got rid of Roy Hodgson towards the end of the season, um, they've they're supposedly about to announce Patrick Vieira 
as their new manager, which seems to have come out of nowhere. He was in the the ITV studio working on the uh, working on the games, having a bit of banter with um, with Roy Keane, going backwards and forwards in the in the last couple of weeks. But he seems to have combined the the working in London with going for a job interview at Crystal Palace as well, Niall. Because out <laughs> of nowhere, Patrick Vieira has gone from from almost forgotten about as a manager to uh, to taking over Crystal Palace if it goes through. I don't like writing people off before they take a job, but this has got flop written all over it. <laughs> this has just got Frank de Boer Mark II written all over it. Um, well, I'd he's love been to be as well. I know <laughs> he, I, I, they should have held out. They should have waited for him. I, I, you know what? And I wonder how many Palace fans would rather have de Boer back than Vieira in. <laughs> um, you know, Patrick Vieira obviously cut his teeth in management at Manchester City when he left. Um, was it Juventus he was at? He, he, did he go to Manchester City for a season and then join the coaching setup? And I think he was the yeah, manager of New York City, which is one of the Manchester City kind of sister clubs, if, if that's the right way to put it. Um, I know very little about Patrick Vieira's management style, which is why I was quite loath to to write him off. Um, but he also managed Nice, didn't he, for for two seasons? And actually, in the last three or four years, Nice have become one of the better sides in the French league. So I, I know very, very little um, about his management style. Uh, what I will say is it's great to see another black manager being given a chance in the Premier League. I think that's a, a good thing to see. You know, he has had a, an illustrious playing career and we've seen players like Frank Lampard uh, and Steven Gerrard who have had no managerial experience purely academy coaching experience go into very very important jobs in this country for instance Steven Gerrard went from Liverpool under 18s straight into the Rangers job Frank Lampard went straight into the Derby job and then straight into the Chelsea job so in terms of you know the idea that he's not got the experience and he's not uh, particularly the right man for the job um yeah, that's a difficult one to get your head around because if you look at the likes of even Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United, who's managed Mulder and Cardiff City, and now he's the United manager and they finished second and they got to a cup final last season. So, you know, you do, you do have to take sometimes this experience with a pinch of salt. He's a well-respected figure. Um, there's no doubt about that. Certainly he commanded respect on the football field when he played for Arsenal. Certainly a, a player I remember very, very vividly growing up in that Arsenal team, particularly in the Invincibles. He was the heart of that team. He was the one who almost, you know, was was the leader of that group. He's a World Cup winner with France. He's a Euros winner with France. So, you know, he's got an illustrious CV. Um, what his management style will bring, I'm not too sure. But I just have a funny feeling that this is not going to work out. I think particularly because Crystal Palace have been talking to several managers. They spoke to Nuno Espirito Santo and that fell through due to the ridiculous amount of backroom staff that Nuno Santo has and the wages that he wants to put them on, which has put off a few Premier League clubs, I think. They also spoke to um, Julian Favre or Lucien Favre, I can't remember his name, but um, they were speaking to him as well. Um, they've been speaking to several different managers, I think, Crystal Palace. And they because to Frank Lampard a few weeks ago, as well, a few months ago. So. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, I mean, there's been so many, I can't think of them off the top of my head, but there is a big rebuilding job to be had there at Selhurst Park. And I just wonder whether that is part of the reason where it's put plenty of managers off, because it's almost you're doomed to fail there at Crystal Palace. Um, a lot of people have said if they stay up this season, it would be a bit of a miracle. I can't see them finishing in the top 10, that's for sure. Certainly with the amount of players they've got out of contract, it's going to be really difficult. They need to make some signings. Um, but before they can do that, they need to find a manager. And if 
Patrick Vieira is announced, which looks extremely likely that that's going to be the case. Good luck to him, but it's a hell of a job he's got on his hands. And I just wonder whether the reason I feel that this has got a flop written all over it is because it's such a difficult job and plenty of managers have turned it down or at least decided against going for the role. Um, and they're managers who have got plenty more experience than Vieira. I'm thinking of the likes of Nuno Espirito Santo. So definitely an interesting one and uh, I'm keen to see how he gets on. Um, I hope he isn't a flop because I like him as a player, uh, but I'm really be interested to see how, how he gets on. Well, I think uh, looking at Vieira's managerial record, I think he took uh, the New York City side that came 17th in the MLS table. Um, and in his first season, he had them fourth. In his second season, he had them second. I know it works differently over there because there's, there's an MLS Cup at the end of the season and, and what have you. But then he went to Nice and he got them uh, into Europe, I think, in his first season. And then everything went a bit uh, a bit belly up towards the, the, the second season. And he ended up losing five straight games and getting sacked in December 2020. So six months out of uh, out of work, but he seems to be back in work at Crystal Palace and alongside another manager who's coming back into the Premier League. It, it seems Ian is uh, Rafa Benitez, who, despite it being known how Everton fans feel about this. It is reported last night that he signed a deal at Everton to be their new manager. Apparently, it's a three-year deal at Goodison Park. Um, there was something on on Twitter. I don't know if you guys seen it. I'm sure you you probably did. A, a banner um, draped very near Rafa Benitez's house, and it says, "We know where you live. Don't sign," which is probably the most disgusting thing I've ever seen, to be honest. In in terms of you know speaking out about about um, somebody potentially joining your club to try and help you. But even though that's an extreme thing, do you think that that just sums up how Everton fans feel and, and therefore the board should feel, should heed their the warnings of their fans? Well, it is going to happen today, uh, apparently, by the way. He's arrived at the Everton training ground in the last hour and um, he's set to be announced later on today as the new manager of Everton. So it is on. Um, look, he's managed many teams around the world and, and not just in this country. I mean, he's managed, uh, obviously, Liverpool, but he managed Liverpool quite a long time ago, really. It's not like he's gone from Liverpool to Everton. And even still, so what? 14 years now, I think Yeah, it exactly. It's, it's, it's old history, different players, a different era. And, um, you know, there have been many people who have made that trip across Stanley Park in both directions. He's not the first to ever do it. It's not like there is a, an unwritten rule or whatever, or even a written rule, that if you play for Liverpool, you can't play for Everton. Same for managers. You know, so what's the difference? He's The difference he is he won them the Champions League and he called them a small club. Well, I mean, come on. It's... it's they need to... Um, well, I mean, with that in mind then, do you want a decent manager who will come and make a change into how you Everton have been and maybe get them a bit further up the table because we know Rafa Benitez has got those skills to very much keep them in the league but probably get them qualified for Europe and stuff like that? Or do you want someone who's not as good but hasn't got ties to Liverpool? I think Rafa Benitez, you're absolutely right, Ian, is the best that Everton can get at the moment. I think that there's yeah, no exactly. arguments with that. I'm totally in your camp with that. However, I would be also in that camp with you too. I think he's yeah. the best manager in the world that's out of work right now. Yeah, and I think they're the, he's the best that Everton can get. And I don't think there's any doubt in that. However, if the fans don't want him and they're leaving threatening banners outside of his house, I mean, 
Fair play to well, Rafa. Fair play to Rafa yeah. for fronting up and, and still taking the job after that. The police are investigating that, by the way. That that banner um, that was left outside of his home. Goodison Park has been tagged up and sprayed with um, with spray paint saying Rafa don't sign. Um, it's just it's, it's just it's a, stupid. It is, it is stupid, but I mean, if there's it's, one yeah, way it, the fans are going to make their thoughts known, I feel like they've done that, and I think most Evertonians aren't willing to let the fact that he managed Liverpool, won them the Champions League and called them a small club, go. I mean... And I think I think he's doomed to fail at Everton, Rafa Benitez, because of that. Because as soon as things start going wrong, and inevitably they will, Everton will go on a losing run. They'll lose four, five, six games in a row or whatever. And they'll be not in the European picture. People will start really piling on to Rafa Benitez because of his history. But at the same time, you know, they'll, they'll complain about another fam- uh, 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 a manager coming in from another country or wherever he might be, and he doesn't he doesn't understand us. He doesn't understand our people. He doesn't understand, uh, mm. you know, the club. He does understand it because he lives in Liverpool anyway. Like you say, he's not just moved to Liverpool ahead of this signing. He has always had this home in Liverpool. Yes, he's got ties with Liverpool Football Club from the past. But I mean, come on, you know, you've got to just grow up, I think, sometimes. And this is this is the part of football that does my head in. People get far too close to it, far too tribal towards it. It's not a war. It's a football club. He's there to manage you. He's there to bring good times to to you as well, because he's done it. You, you don't have to ask his credentials. He's won the Champions League. You know what? What? Maybe you might just bring some of that success to, to Everton as well maybe maybe he might just if you didn't get on his back over stuff that was said 14 years ago that's like school yep. children you know well e- Everton finished 10th in last season's Premier League below Leeds United considering they started Could the best imagine? of I any mean, team if that was Rafa Benitez he would be sacked because it was Ancelotti he was yeah. given time I don't think Benitez will be given time by the Evertonians and their fans purely because it is fraught with danger I mean, yeah, well, he, he's 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 fighting a losing battle already by even taking the job. Even those Evertonians who are quite keen to give him a chance and let bygones be bygones and let the past be the past. I think as soon as the heat starts to crank up, Rafa, the pressure on him will be double, triple, quadruple what it was on Ancelotti. And I think that that's purely because of the history. And unfortunately, that's something that comes with this game of football that we all love. Um, and I just think that that is why uh, uh, this is isn't just not going to work out. I just can't, I just can't see it working out. In fact, I think it's all part of the grand plan though, to get back into St. James's park, you know, have a couple of quick months at Everton, get back in the game. And then before you know it, just give give, (laughs) give Steve Bruce enough time and uh, get straight back in there. Maybe, maybe that might be it. I don't know. Grand plan. What do you think, Marley? Uh, I'd take that. As long as he comes back at some point, we we don't care what he's ever said about, uh, about anyone. So, yeah, um, but let's look at um, 14th of August, so just over, what is it, six weeks, 14th of August, Everton kick off their Premier League campaign at home to Southampton. Imagine imagine the Goodison crowd if he's, uh, if he's announced and in the dugout for that one. I don't know quite what that'll be like, but fans are expected to be back, of course, um, and it'll be one of the most interesting atmospheres ever because that is... We'll see if he can win the round. It looks like he's going to sign today. Uh, Twitter will be a fun place later on, um, full of vitriol and and quotes coming up from the last 14 years. It'd be interesting to know what Liverpool fans think as well of this or whether they're just not bothered about their their perceived smaller neighbours uh, taking uh, taking on one of their ex-sloppy uh, seconds almost. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
There's a sloppy seconds, Christ, can't believe I said that on the podcast. But anyway, that seems it seems a good place to wrap up. Um, we're going to be back tomorrow. There'll be more uh, Premier League chat tomorrow because obviously the Euros are finished until Friday. Um, now we think the the last sixteen, uh, sorry, the last eight games kick off on Friday again. So we'll be focusing tomorrow on the Premier League and goings on in the managerial world. I'm pretty sure Spurs won't have a manager by tomorrow, even though Jurgen Klinsmann is absolutely desperate for that job if you hear him on, on BBC last night talking about uh, talking about that job again. But we'll see what happens in the meantime. But for today, thank you, Ian. Thank you. And thank you, Niall. Cheers, Marley. Cheers, Ian. Remember, everyone, it's coming home. Um, if it's not, it still is coming home. It's just a case of when it comes home. It's a matter of when, not if. So there you go. Join us again tomorrow for more chat. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.